Hi, I'm Josh Van Berkel. Welcome to the Activate Christchurch podcast. It's our privilege to share it with you. I hope you enjoy it. And if you ever find yourself in Christchurch, pop in and say hello. We'd love to see you. Well, hello and good morning, Activate Christchurch. Hope you're having a fantastic Sunday. Welcome to Lounge Church, first Sunday of the month, first Sunday of October. Can you believe it? We're into October already. Where has this year gone? It's just crazy. Uh, We're going to jump into the book of Acts in just a moment. We're going to start a brand new chapter, Acts chapter 9. I had somebody say to me during the week, they said, Hey, um, how long are you planning on staying on the book of Acts for? Because there's like 28 chapters and it's taking almost a year to do 10. So by my reckoning, we're going to be in this book for like the next two years. Uh, And uh, I laughed. I said, look, actually, I don't know how long we'll be in it. But the more I think about it, just to give you some sort of idea, in case you're wondering the same thing, I kind of feel like maybe once we get to the end of this year, that's probably the end of our our Acts exploration. Even though we would have only done 10 or 11 chapters, maybe, you can carry on and read the rest if you like. But I feel like for next year, 2023, uh, probably it's going to be a bit of a change up. There's going to be something new that God's doing. So uh, I kind of feel... And I wouldn't say 100%, but this is where I'm leaning, that once we finish 2022, we'll end up our study of the Book of Acts. And maybe we'll pick it up another time down the track. But I'm thinking for next year, there'll be a different approach. There'll be a different um, way of doing things. There'll be a, a fresh wind if you want to get all spiritual about it. So just if you're sitting there thinking, okay, it's been a whole year of Acts and we're up to Acts chapter 9. What's going on here? I think next year might look a little bit different. So enjoy it while it lasts because there's not too many of these to go, all right? Grab your Bibles. You know how last week I talked about Simon the Sorcerer? I've got a magic trick for you. Are you ready? Look at this. Oh, now it's got a Bible in it. Oh, I just made a Bible appear out of nowhere. (laughs) It's the worst magic trick in the world. All right, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open it up to Acts chapter 9 this morning, verses 1 to 19. We're looking at a brand new passage called Saul's Conversion. And the plan for this morning, very briefly, is we're going to read through this. We're going to pause along the way to add some color to it, add some context, some historical context, some social context, just to make it pop a little bit. And I'm going to make a couple of observations as we go. Then I'm going to throw it back to your lounge church leader and you guys can discuss in your lounge churches what really spoke to you, what you felt like God was highlighting to you, what you feel like the Holy Spirit wants you to kind of um, do differently as a result of this. And and that's a really big thing. When we read our Bibles, uh, when we come to church, it's important to stop and ask yourself this question, how has what I've heard actually affected my life? Because sometimes you can go to church, sometimes you can read your Bible, and then you close it or you go home, and you don't do anything differently. You don't change the way you think, you don't change the way you act, and if you do that, then nothing changes. That's why Jesus said, if you're someone that hears the word, but never does the word, you're like a person that looks in the mirror and then goes away and forgets what they look like. Like, you know, that's just dumb. So I challenge you to challenge yourself this morning and go, okay, what is something that I can take out of this passage that I can actually apply to my life, that I can think differently about, that I can do differently? Because unless it changes how you live, then really what's the point in it? Let's be honest. So that's the challenge for this morning. And you're going to have to come up with that yourself. I'm not going to tell you what to do differently because it's different for everybody, right? Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Let's read about this man called Saul. Verse 1 says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Let's just pause right there. Breathing out murderous threats. That's the beautiful language, right? He's breathing out murderous threats. It's not like he's saying murder. It's literally coming out of his breath. 
If you look up the Greek word that we interpret in English, breathing out, in the Greek, it literally means inhale, which is like the complete opposite of breathing out, right? It means to breathe in, like you inhale, you exhale, you breathe in, you breathe out. And it's almost as if our translators looked at it and went, well, how can you breathe in murderous threats? Like that doesn't even make any sense. So we're going to write breathing out. Uh, And what I like about this is that between those two definitions, between those two kind of languages or translations, however you want to look at it, what it tells us is that Paul or Saul at this stage, his entire being is just completely wrapped up in this idea that he has to annihilate the followers of Jesus Christ. He's breathing it in. He's breathing it out. It's what he lives for. It's his entire being is wrapped around it. You know, you could get a little bit spiritual about it and go, well, is he breathing in murderous threats? Like, is there some sort of demonic activity around him? And he's actually, you know, breathing in this stuff and then he's manifesting it himself. I mean, who knows what's going on? All we know is that Paul is doing some bad stuff or Saul at this stage. In fact, let me say right now, I'm going to bounce between Saul and Paul as we go. I'm not always going to get it chronologically correct, but we're talking about the same guy. Saul becomes Paul. Sometimes I'll call him Saul. Sometimes I'll call him Paul. I can't help myself. He is, I was going to say he's a bad guy doing bad things, but I don't think he is a bad guy. I actually think he's a good guy. He's seriously misled. He's seriously barking up the wrong tree, but he's passionate for God. He's passionate for you know, the word of God, and he's absolutely and utterly convinced that Jesus Christ is a sham, that he has led tons of people astray, that they are destroying the Jewish faith, and that they are a threat to their very fabric of, you know, their religion. And so he he has taken it upon himself to just wipe them out. I wouldn't say he's a bad guy, but he's seriously, seriously, seriously wrong. I'll say seriously one more time. He's seriously wrong. And so he goes to the high priest uh, and asks him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which are followers of Jesus Christ, that's how Luke refers to them, particularly in the book of Acts, whether men or women. Now, that's interesting in this context, right? Because the Bible often doesn't differentiate between men and women. It'll just say there were 5,000 men there. And it means, you know, including women and children. The fact that it says here that Saul was actually prepared to drag men away and women away is a big deal. It says that whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So what's happened here is that Saul has gone to the high priest in Jerusalem. Now, if you've been following the stories in the last few chapters, you'll know that the high priest in Jerusalem is not a fan of the disciples. He's not a fan of the followers of Jesus Christ. Peter and John, they've caused them nothing but trouble. They hate these guys. They want to see them wiped out. And so when Saul comes to him and says, you know what? Kind of feel like I've I've kind of feel like I've murdered everyone that I can murder in Jerusalem. Like I've imprisoned everyone that I can imprison, and there's no one left here. Um, what about if I go to Damascus and I see if there's any of the followers of the way there, and I'll, I'll, I'll murder them or I'll like imprison them? And we know from uh, the uh, Jewish historian Josephus, who worked for the Romans, that there was a significant Jewish population in Damascus. They had around 40 synagogues, which are the Jewish churches. And at one point, he wrote that there was a, a bit of a massacre of the Jews in Damascus, and 10,000 Jews were killed. Now, if 10,000 Jews were killed, that means that there was a lot more than 10,000 Jews in the city. So a significant Jewish population. And so Saul sees an opportunity here to go in and start rounding them up. And of course, the high priest doesn't need any convincing. He hates the followers of the way anyway. So he says, yeah, mate, go for it. 
So off Saul goes on this journey to Damascus to round up men and women. And again, make no mistake, he's doing bad things. To, to put this in a modern day context, this, in the Second World War, Saul would be like the leader of the Gestapo. He's the leader of the, the German secret service. It's going around pulling husbands away from their wives or, or mothers away from their children and throwing them off into Auschwitz or, or, or killing them in the fields or they're never seen again. This is who Saul was. Uh, he's the leader of the Chinese military police that's raiding lounge churches and dragging kids away or, or whatever it might be. This is what Saul was doing. It, it's hard to, you know, because we're so used to, to reading the writings of Paul which is who he became afterwards. We're so used to reading one of the 13 books that he authored, or maybe 14 if you include the book of Hebrews. I mean, the guy wrote half the New Testament. That's why uh, there was a um, an investigative journalist and a writer uh, back in the early 20th century, a guy called, I think it was Albert Ross. Um, just checking on my notes. Yeah, Albert Ross. He was a lawyer and investigative journalist. And he said this. He was an atheist. And he said, if you want to undermine Christianity, if you want to destroy Christianity, you've got to come at it from two separate angles. Number one, you've got to destroy the story of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. Like the resurrection story is completely and utterly foundational to the faith of the Christian. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what are we even doing here, right? And so he said, you've got to destroy that, that story, that myth, as he called it. But he said, the second story you have to go after is you have to go after the conversion of Saul. Because so much of the early church is built around the teachings of Saul, the person of Saul or Paul at this point. You know, like he wrote half the New Testament, for goodness sake. He's the dominant figure from basically chapter 9 in the book of Acts onwards throughout the rest of the New Testament. He's just, it's just Paul, 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 Paul. And so this guy, Albert Ross, he recognized as an atheist, you've got to destroy the credibility of the resurrection story, and you've got to destroy the credibility of the conversion of Saul. So it's great that we're looking at it this morning. I just wanted to bring that to your attention. As far as this atheist was concerned, this is the second most important moment in the New Testament. Now, what's fascinating, side note, is that Albert Ross went out and did all of his research and ended up becoming completely converted uh, and changing his name to, well, he didn't change his name, but he wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone under the pseudonym of Frank Morrison, where he basically uh, pointed out that there was just an abundance of evidence for the fact that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And after doing all of his research, he became a Christian, which is pretty cool. And that book, Who Moved the Stone, is still in print uh, today, I think. Anyway, we get to verse 3. I wanted to point out to you how bad Saul was because uh, it's really important to a point that I'm going to make later on. Verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Not referring to Lord with a capital L, even though it is capitalized in my Bible, but it's more just like, who are you, sir? Like, you know, just someone that's probably a little bit higher up the food chain than him. And so Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. I love this little interplay between Saul and Jesus because, because Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus had already been crucified on the cross, he had already been resurrected, and he'd already ascended to heaven. Many, like months earlier, maybe a year or two earlier, we don't know, but a long time ago, he's gone. So Saul is not persecuting Jesus. Why does Jesus say, I'm the one you're persecuting? I mean, he literally interrupts Saul's life and says, why are you persecuting me? 
when he wasn't persecuting him, who was Saul persecuting? He was persecuting the Christians. He was persecuting the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus. He was persecuting you and me. And what I love about the way that Jesus handles this is it just shows us how personal Jesus takes it when one of us are persecuted, when we are maligned or our reputations are attacked or we're accused of being XYZ because we're followers of Jesus Christ. And, and make no mistake, it's, it's, it's always never been less popular to be a Christian in recent memory than it is at the moment. Uh, and get used to the idea that people are going to call you racist or bigot. Well, they shouldn't call you racist. Let me take that one back. But bigoted, <laughs> if they're calling you racist, then maybe you need to rethink kind of how you're living your life. But bigoted definitely is, is a criticism that will get labeled at Christians often. Or intolerant is another one. And, and I just find it so encouraging that when we're persecuted or we're slandered or we're abused verbally or whatever, uh, that Jesus says, hey, I, to me, it's like they're abusing me. Like he takes it that personally. It's, And I think also it's worth just a, a word of caution too. You know, if you're having a go at another believer or you're getting stuck into somebody or you're gossiping about somebody or you're kind of, you know, and gossip is just persecution behind their back. Like, just be aware that when you do that, Jesus takes it very personally. He's like, no, if you do it to one of them, you're doing it to me. And that's his attitude to Saul here. He says, hey, why are you persecuting me? Get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. I love that about Jesus. Verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind and, excuse me, did not eat or drink anything. So what this tells us about Saul is that he has taken this interaction very seriously. This has, this has really messed him up. He's not eating. He's not drinking. He doesn't know what to do. It's completely turned his whole life upside down. I mean, he has devoted his life to destroying the followers of Jesus. Now he's had a radical encounter with this guy called Jesus on the road. Uh, supernatural encounter. He can't even see now. I mean, it must. he must have been complete turmoil. And imagine just for a moment that you're him. And you, you're coming to this revelation, this realization that you were wrong. And that, that, that everyone that you were persecuting and, and standing there overseeing Stephen's public execution, giving approval to his death and thinking it was a good thing, like the guilt that he must have been feeling, the shame that he must have been feeling, just the absolute like, oh my gosh, I have been imprisoning these fathers, I've been imprisoning these mums, I've been you know tearing families apart, I've been overseeing murders, and I was wrong. Like it must have been just... The, the emotion that was going on in his in his heart over those three days must have been intense, right? So verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Again, what does this tell us about the character of Saul? He is praying in this space. He's just found out that everything he believed is completely back to front. And the guys that he thought were the bad guys are the good guys. And does that mean the guys I thought were the good guys are the bad guys? And how does Saul respond? He's praying. Remember last week we talked about Simon the Sorcerer. And we looked at the fact that when he recognized that he'd stuffed up, or I even know if he did recognize, but when Peter challenged him on it and said, man, you've got to repent, you've got to change the way that you're thinking, and you've got to pray, and you've got to ask God for forgiveness, what did Simon say? He went, meh, well, you ask God on my behalf. I don't want to do that. And, and 
we've got a complete, complete opposite response from Saul here. When he's found out that he's stuffed up, he is pushing into God. He is praying. Uh, verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. I, I love this. I mean, I'm sure that God's not doing this, but when you read the way that God kind of suggests this to Ananias, He's not overly transparent. Like he doesn't say, Ananias, I want you to go and I want you to pray for Saul. Look, I know he's a, I know he's been doing bad things. I know this is going to freak you out, but I need you to do it. He's just like, hey, I want you to go to Judas's house on Straight Street. And I want you to ask for a man um, <coughs> from Tarsus uh, named Saul. You know, like, almost like he's hoping that maybe Ananias isn't aware of who the guy is. And I'm sure he's not doing that because he's God, but it just makes me laugh. And so Ananias is like, um, excuse me. Uh, I know exactly who you <coughs> Tarsus, <coughs> Saul. I know exactly what you're talking about. He's a nut job. He's done, he's done all sorts of horrible things. Oh, look at all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. Verse 14. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Read between the lines. Ananias is like, uh, no. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. Exclamation mark. Oh, someone got his hand slapped. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Verse 16 right there. You could preach a whole sermon around that. Like, what does that tell you about the character of Saul, soon to become Paul? I mean, he's just found out that everything he's believed is back to front and upside down. And then God says to him, I've shown him that if he... If he accepts my invitation to enter into a relationship with me, this is what his life is going to look like. It's going to look like beatings. It's going to look like not having enough food to eat. It's going to look like being imprisoned. It's going to look like being stoned. It's going to look like being shipwrecked. It's going to look like being whipped. It's going to look like being left for dead. It's going to look like ultimately being executed. It's going to look like spending years in prison. Like God says, I'm going to show him all of this stuff. And Saul, in the face of all of that, still goes, yeah, I'll do it. Like, that's, that's just crazy. Like, we live in an age in 2022 where unless you can convince people that God loves you, he's just love, he's love, he's love, you become a Christian and life is great, it's great, it's great, which is just completely not true. I mean, God, the first part is God is love, 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 but you become a Christian and then your life falls apart a lot of the time because all of a sudden the enemy goes, whoa, I, okay, I'm going to start throwing some stuff at this person. I just love the fact that that's... I'd love to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation between God and, and Saul, right? But God says, I've shown him. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Like, I'll, I'll be straight up with him. Don't you worry. Um, verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. What we have here is just an absolutely phenomenal conversion story, which, I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, I don't know anybody with a conversion story like that. When I was over in Africa, one of the questions that I love to ask the people that I met that were Christians, I, 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 in fact, I love asking this to anybody, but um, I asked it a lot in Africa because I was meeting new people every day. But I would ask them, how did you meet Jesus? What's your what's your Christian origin story? You know, and, and different people have different stories. And, you know, I remember one lady, she said, well, I became a Christian when I was a teenager because I got invited to become a Satanist. I said, what? She said, well, 
I was at school and I got given a letter by a friend of mine and I opened it up and it was an invitation to a Satanist meeting to join the Satanists. And they said if I came, they would pay me. And they had like, you know, a money monetary offer in the invitation. And so she went home and she gave it to her dad and said, Dad, what do you reckon? Like I could use the money. And I thought, well, that's, you know, it's a great way to grow your church, right? Great way to grow your religion and pay people to join um, anyway. But her dad fortunately said, this, this just doesn't seem like a good idea, honey. And so she didn't. She said, no, I'm not going to be a Satanist. And I think her dad said something along the lines from memory of like, well, you know, there's, there's also God. You could look at that. And so that's how she became a Christian, right? It all got started by being invited to become a Satanist. You know, other people have got different stories. You know, I've got lots of friends that were, you know, living, you know, hedonistic lifestyles and then had a radical encounter with God. But none of them, like Paul, I mean, imagine if you sat down with Paul and you said, hey, Paul, tell me how you met Jesus. And he's like, well, first of all, I was murdering Christians. You'd be like, uh, what? Say what? I was murdering Christians. I'd like go into people's houses like two o'clock in the morning. I'd drag the dad away or the mum away and would throw them in prison and throw away the key and they'd never see their family again. Or, you know, we'd just kill them, whatever. There's one guy called Stephen. We just threw stones at him until he was dead. Uh, you'd be like, uh. And then I was like walking to Damascus. I was actually, I was going to Damascus because I wanted to round up more people and then bring them back to Jerusalem. And we had permission from the high priest because we all hated Christians and so I was going to go in there and like just get a whole bunch of them and then I just encounter with Jesus and I heard the audible voice of God and then I went blind and then I had to fast for three days and then God came to me and said he was going to send a man called Ananias and he'd pray for me and then a man called Ananias showed up and he prayed for me you just be like this is the most crazy crazy you know conversion story I've ever heard but it's almost like it needed to be that crazy right because Saul was so he was doing such horrible stuff uh, and um, I guess my whole kind of point for this morning, my whole like, ah, which I want to leave you with, is this idea that that if 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 God can save Saul, this this guy that's literally literally breathing out murderous threats, the Bible says, if God can save Saul, He can save anybody, right? Nobody is that lost that they can't be found. And so I just I want you to take a moment right now. And I want you to just ask yourself, who is who is that person in my life? Who's that person that I'm just like, man, I, in a million years, I can't see them becoming a Christian. Like, they're so far gone. They're so out of the, you know, out of God's plan. Like, they're as far from God as they could possibly be. I just can't see a way for them back. I just, I've had so many conversations. They shut it down. They've rejected it. They're angry. Like, if there was ever a person that I would say, you are the last person on earth that I would expect to become a Christian, it's that person. Who's that person for you? I just want you to, I want you to lift them up now, just in your heart. And I want to tell you that, that, that God can save anybody. What we learn from this story is just the power of God's grace. And, and what I love about it too, is that Paul, as he becomes Paul, he is like the man that just exudes grace. He preaches grace. He has got the single greatest revelation of the grace of God than anybody in the Bible, possibly anyone in you know flipping history. And the reason he's got such a revelation of God's grace is because he experienced it. That's why it says in First uh, Timothy chapter one verse fifteen, he says this. Um, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners... 
Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. See, Paul, getting emotional, just reading it out loud. Paul had this understanding, this revelation that his whole life had led up to that point. Now, I'm not saying that God was behind the way that he acted or that God was happy with how he was acting or that God was pulling the strings behind the scenes. But, you know, the Bible says that he can work all things for good. And so God took this life that was just completely going to hell in a handbasket, 100% in the wrong direction. And he turned it into the single greatest example of grace that the world had ever seen up to that point. And Paul knew it. He was like, "This, if God can save me, God can save anybody. And so I just want to tell you this morning, and I don't even know who I'm preaching to this morning, but maybe you've got someone that you're holding in your heart. There is no one that is so lost that they can't be saved. The big kind of takeaway for me this morning is that if a man like Saul can become a man like Paul, then there is nothing that God can't do in the life of anybody, you know, as long as we trust him and we pray. And so what I want to do this morning is I actually want to just camp around that a little bit, but not with me, in your lounge churches. I'm going to hand it back to your lounge church leaders now. And I want you to just talk about this idea that there is no one that is so lost that God can't find them. I saw something on Facebook just this week. They said, um, how did it go? It was something along the lines of, I'm trying to remember it now. Uh, they, they said, "They said I didn't find God. God found me. God was never lost. I was. And that's so true. Like we kind of use this language like, oh, you know, when did you find Jesus? Or I found Jesus. But then we also use the language that, well, I was lost and now I'm found. And, and the two don't really kind of go together. Make no mistake. You were lost. I was lost. Everybody was lost. And then God found us. And if he can find me and he can find you and he can find Paul, and that's Paul's whole point, he can find anybody. His grace extends to anybody. And so in your groups, what I want you to do is I want you to just share the name of that person that popped into your head that you're like, this is someone that that I just, you know, I'm struggling to have faith for. And I want you in your groups, I want you to pray for them. For every single person, every single name that comes up, I want you to pray for them. And I want you to just release just this faith that if God can do for Saul what he did for Saul, then he can do for your friend, your family member, your co-worker, whoever it might be. He can do it for them as well. All right? It's a great conversion story. It's been fun sharing it with you. Looking forward to catching up in person next Sunday. But for now, I'm going to hand it over to your lounge church leaders. And you enjoy the rest of your Sunday and have a great lunch. God bless.